0: Next on Contemplate.
1: The world is upside down. Jesus comes, and, and for the believer, for the Christ follower, he turns the world right side up. It only seems like upside down if you like standing on your head. And that's the, that's the nature of how we are. Good is bad, bad is good, right is wrong, and so on. We get, we get messed up, and it feels like we've, the world's been turned upside down when Jesus comes into our life. But the truth is he's putting things right.
0: was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Camas, Washington, and this is Contemplate. I'm Ron again. Thanks for listening as we continue our series, Contentment in Christ. We're looking at Acts chapters 15 through 18 in this series and learning so much from the early church and how they lived for Jesus. And as we move ahead, I hope you too will be inspired by the boldness of Paul and Silas, who laid it all on the line everywhere they went. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 16, verse 35. And let's join Pastor David Robinson with today's episode recorded live at Acts Church.
1: Let's get in the Word. we got a lot to do today. Uh, last time we were in chapter 16 and we saw Paul and Silas go through some stuff and they got put in prison. And there was an earthquake and their chains were set free and the doors opened and they, they didn't uh, leave the prison. And instead, the keeper of the prison ended up coming to know Jesus by the testimony of them sort of staying there when this thing happened. And so we saw that occur. We saw the, the jailer and his household come to know the Lord. And from there, uh, we, we saw them get baptized. We saw their wounds get cleaned. And then we start here in 1635 uh, of Acts And it's the next day. And it says this. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let these men go. So, We don't know exactly why they were only in jail one night. It could have been that they had only planned to put them in jail one night. It was kind of a warning. It wasn't, you know, they they didn't really intend to keep them for a long time. But it also could have been that this earthquake happened. Because these people were relatively superstitious. They thought, okay, we beat these guys. We put them in prison. And then an earthquake happens that night. Maybe we want these guys out of here. So they send and they say, let these guys go. And let's see what happens. Uh, Verses 36 and 37. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now, Paul is pretty bold, okay? If, you don't, if you're not catching on to Paul's personality here, this might be a good indication for you. Paul is a bold guy. He's saying, Listen, Uh, They beat us and we're Romans, we were uncondemned, and they can come get us out themselves. And I'm guessing that Silas is probably sitting here going, "Uh, Paul, let's just go. We don't want them coming back with the sticks, right? I don't know if you've ever been around that friend who's much more bold than you're really wanting to be at the moment. Uh, You know, I want you to take this return back or whatever, and and you're just like, "Just just keep the thing, I'll pay for it, whatever. I don't want to get into a thing. Here, Paul's sitting here saying, no, he knows the law, right? He knows that as Romans, it was illegal for these magistrates to have beat them like they did and put them in prison. No trial, no right of appeal, no nothing. But as Roman citizens, they were entitled to that. So Paul knew the law and said, you've got to come get us out. Now, uh, this is interesting to me because I'm really not sure. The first kind of question I have is, Why did he say it when they started the beating? Or better yet, before they started the beating, right? Um, He could have called them out then and said, we're Roman citizens, we get a trial, we get a right to appeal and whatever before you can scourge us, beat us, and put us in prison. But he didn't say it then. Another question that Silas probably had for him later, if you knew the law and knew that this was the deal, why didn't you say it before we were beaten? That's at least what I would say if I was Silas. Um, But I have to assume that Paul... Felt at the time, either he wasn't able to speak, it was so quick, and they, they weren't given a chance to speak at all, or he felt that they were supposed to go through this persecution. And they were supposed to go through this persecution for a reason, and that God was going to work in it, which of course we saw he did. I hope that if I'm ever in that situation, I have a way out, and God says, no, stay in it, I'll stay in it, and have the courage to do that. Uh, but I think that took a lot of courage for Paul. So what did these magistrates do when Paul kind of calls them out? It says in verse, sorry, verse 38. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So it worked. It was kind of a bold play by Paul um, because they could have just said, I don't care if you're Romans, and come back and beat them down again. But they didn't. Instead, they were afraid, and now these guys have to kind of come hat in hand to Paul and I said, please, will you please come out of the jail? Which is a very different thing than what was going on the day before when they were having them beat down, right? And, and so I, I don't know the answer to this, but I would guess that this gave the Philippian church some breathing room. Um, now that these magistrates, the guys who were in charge of the city, had sort of got caught in something, they probably didn't mess with the Christians there for a while. That's just my guess, because all they'd have to do is be like, remember when you beat our buddies, the uncondemned Romans? And they probably didn't want to get into that. And so it's very possible that by Paul and Silas doing this, that they provided a lack of persecution for the Philippian church for some time afterwards. We don't know, but that's certainly a possibility. Now, let's see what what happens next. Uh, Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Okay, so they leave. They're like, okay, we're gonna go. Uh, obviously, these guys—they don't just want them out of prison; they want them out of town. They don't want to mess with this. Paul has come preaching Jesus. That's causing uproar. They don't want to mess with it anymore. They want them to just go, just get out. And so they go back to Lydia, if you remember, at the beginning of chapter 16, Lydia gets saved along with her household, they get saved and baptized, this is where the church in Philippi has sort of begun, and so they go back, they say hey to the the brothers and sisters in Christ there, and they encourage them in the Lord, and then they take off, they take off, and so uh, let's start into, and by the way, it says, uh, they encouraged them and departed. We remember, If you remember, Luke had been involved. He had come to Philippi with him. Now he's not using the word we, he's using the word they, meaning that Luke is staying. Luke is likely staying here in Philippi. Paul, Timothy, and Silas are probably going on to the next place. Uh, so we're going to start chapter 17. As we start chapter 17, we're going to read three sort of different scenarios, three different places that Paul goes, three different ways that people react to the gospel as he goes in. And as I'm going through them, I just want you to think about yourself and about the way that you reacted. When the gospel was first presented to you, when the truth of Jesus Christ was first brought to you, how did you react? Because there's three very distinct ways that we see people reacting here. We're going to walk through them, and I want you to just be thinking about that. So it's map time first, okay? We're heading out of Philippi. I'm going to read verse 17:1. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So let's get our map up. As you remember, uh, they started in Antioch which I think is over on the right side of your map there, and they've gone through all these places. For those of you who have been through those sermons, you've known these different places they've gone, and they eventually came to Philippi, which is all the way on the other side, and then you see them going down to Thessalonica. Um, they go down to Thessalonica, and they pass through a couple of cities on the way. It doesn't talk about them really stopping there or doing anything there, and so why Thessalonica? You know, God used uh, Paul, the Holy Spirit worked through Paul and Silas and Timothy and these other brothers and sisters in Christ to spread the gospel across the entire world in a shockingly short amount of time. Remember, they didn't have the internet. So this, was, this stuff had to pass by word of mouth, by letter, by things like that, and it passed shockingly fast. And part of that is because they're going to these big cities. Thessalonica is the biggest city in Macedonia. It's the capital. It's where the governor sits. This is a big city. It's influential. And Paul's on his way there because he wants to get upstream. He wants to get to where the gospel can go, and if it goes, it has an impact. Things tend to spread from big cities out into the other cities. And so God is leading them to Thessalonica. This place sits, uh, the current city of Thessaloniki, sits on the same site that Thessalonica was, if you get a chance to visit. Let me know how it is. Um, and Paul does what he regularly does. He goes to the synagogue. We've talked about why that is. Why does Paul go to the synagogue first? Well, several reasons. The people in the synagogue are worshipers of the one true God. And so there's a connection automatically. They're not Christians, they're Jewish, but they know the Scriptures, they worship the Lord, they revere the Scriptures, and they're looking forward to the Messiah. So it's an obvious point of departure for Paul to come in and first go to those who have something in common with him that he can then try to preach the word To those people. And so let's look at the next two verses and see uh, how that goes. It says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Alright, so here he is. He goes three Sabbaths. It's at least, at least three weeks he's in here uh, in the synagogue. We don't know exactly how long he was in Thessalonica, but at least three Sabbaths. He's reasoning with them from the Scriptures, okay? Paul is coming in and he's saying, listen, you know the Scriptures. You've been learning these since you were very young. Let me show you what they actually say about the Messiah, Okay, these people are looking for the Messiah to come, but remember, their mindset is the Messiah is going to come and kick the Romans out. He's going to break our chains and set us free. That's what the Messiah is coming about. And Paul's like, no, no, listen, you've got to walk through here. The, Jesus is a conquering king, no doubt, and that's going to happen. But first, he's got to come and save you from your sin. The Roman thing is actually a much smaller thing than saving your soul and renewing your spirit then giving you life in this way. And so but he's got to he's got to preach this to them and he's got to preach it to them from the scriptures because that's what they know. Now you can read some of Uh, The scriptures that talk about the Messiah as having to come and suffer and die. Some of that's in the Psalms. If you read Isaiah, uh, last part of 52 and through 53, you'll read all about the, the prophecies many hundreds of years before Jesus that talked about the Messiah having to come and die. But they didn't like that usually. So Paul had to work through that. He had to reason with them. He had to go through it. And of course, he would have explained the miracles, uh, the teachings of Christ, a witness to the resurrection—that that had happened—all of those things. He goes on and he says, uh, "This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah." The word Christ, the word Messiah, same word. Okay, he's saying that's who Jesus was. So here, here I come. I'm coming into your synagogue. They've probably heard of Jesus. Uh, you know, This didn't happen in a corner somewhere. Jesus was, was not a small deal. It's probably spread. They've probably heard something about Jesus, probably heard something about the hundreds of people who were going around claiming that he rose from the dead and that they saw it. So it's not like they pro- probably had no idea. But here's Paul. He's coming and he's reasoning with them from the scripture to show them why Jesus is actually the Messiah. All right, let's see how they reacted to that. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Well, that's great. Some of them were persuaded. The Holy Spirit worked powerfully through Paul, through his teaching. As a result of that, he's drawing people in their heart. They come to know Jesus Christ. That's awesome. It says a great multitude. I don't know how many that is. It's a lot. A lot of people in the city of Thessalonica were now believers, it says, uh, of the devout Greeks, we know about these Greeks, some of whom were proselytes, right, actually became Jewish, but some of these people were God-fears. They didn't actually go through the whole process to become a proselyte and become Jewish, but they had given up all their idols, and they were worshiping the one true God. They would go to the synagogue. They knew the scriptures, that kind of stuff. And then we have all these leading women who are joining Paul and Silas, coming to know the Lord. Now, for those of you who have been with us in Acts for a while, you might be able to guess... What the others did. So let's just see. We'll just, we'll cut to it. Uh, Verse 5 and 6, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So these uh, Jewish folks who did not buy into it, they were not persuaded. They didn't think that the Scriptures were pointing to Jesus. That's not their, that was not what their thoughts were. They all of a sudden get sort of envious as these multitudes of people start to follow Jesus. These multitudes of people who are going after the Lord they get envious, they get jealous, they don't like it. They have sort of their traditions, their way of doing things, their structures, and they don't like the fact that, this, that Jesus has come in. We've seen this before, this is not new. And as a result, they go and they grab all these evil people, these evil men, and they, and they go and they get a mob together, and they rile them up, and then they go and they attack this house. Now, I, you know, why does this always happen to Paul? Um, it's rough, and, and I'll tell you why it happens. Because when you bring Jesus to people, you bring a choice. And that choice is us, me, or Jesus. And that is a tough choice for a lot of people, and it's a choice that causes real division. And so there's a certain number of people, a great multitude of people who said, Jesus, yes, Jesus. And there's a certain number of people who said, no, no, us, me, it's got to be me. And the ones who say me, they get very upset about the ones who say Jesus, They get very upset about it, and so they want to run that out of town. So they go, um, Jason uh, is probably a Jewish guy. The name Jason actually is a Greek uh, form of Joshua or Jeshua, Jesus. Uh, So that may have been his name originally. He may have been a Jew who had a Greek name. um, And this mob comes to his house. They're looking for Paul and Silas. You have to put yourself in this situation. Imagine you're at home having life group, small group, and an entire mob of people. The whole city has come ready to, to cause some trouble. That would be tough. <laughs> that would be a difficult thing to go through. And they didn't find Paul and Silas. It's one thing they found Paul and Silas. Like, these are the guys who were saying something. No, they didn't find them. So they just grabbed Jason, who had been nice enough to let Paul and Silas stay in his house, and some of the other uh, Christ followers, and just dragged them out of the city. They dragged them out of the city. They bring them to these guys, to these magistrates, these officials, and they say, these guys are the ones who have turned the whole world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. Now, um, of course, Jesus did not turn the world upside down. Jesus turned the world right side up, right? The world was already upside down. The world is upside down. Jesus comes, and, and for the believer, for the Christ follower, he turns the world right side up. It only seems like upside down if you like standing on your head. And that's the, that's the nature of how we are. Good is bad, bad is good, right is wrong, and so on. We get, we get messed up, and it feels like we've, the world's been turned upside down when Jesus comes into our life, but the truth is he's putting things right, not setting them upside down. And so it's a powerful, powerful statement about what the Holy Spirit has done through the early church here, through the early church, that people would say they've turned the whole world upside down just some years from Jesus and his resurrection. That's an incredible statement about the power of the Holy Spirit to work through people like you and me, like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Mark, Lydia, like like these people here who are just regular people, the small group of people who just a few years ago, don't forget, they're running for their lives, running for their lives. And now people are talking about them turning the whole world upside down. God has literally changed the world through them. And so the next time that you feel unimportant, or that you feel like you can't do much. Remember that God has done amazing, incredible things. He has changed the world through people who just were willing to be faithful. Just willing to be faithful. And this city is in an uproar because they've turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. So that's, that's an amazing thing. Um, Alright, so one thing to remember before we get through this little part here is don't forget to pray and thank the Lord every day, that you don't live in a place where you have to worry about a mob coming to your house and dragging you to the city. There are places in the world where that's true. And don't forget to pray for those people. Because there are places where this still happens. There are places where worse things than this still happen. For the name of Jesus Christ, don't forget to thank God that you are in a place where we can come here today. We can come to this place and we can worship the Lord and no one is threatening to drag us away. So that's an amazing thing. All right. Uh, One interesting fact to point out about a Greek word that's used here, and I know you love it when I get into the Greek words, Um, the word politachas. I just wanted to say it. No, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. Uh, (laughs) It's fun to pronounce, though, if you can. Plus, if you have anything in your throat, it gets that out. Scholars point uh, to the use of this word back in the day. They would point to the use of this word and say, this proves that Acts was not written by some guy named Luke in the first century, but rather was written in the second century because this word did not appear in the inscriptions that they had found in the ancient world until the second century. And so they're saying, well, the person who wrote this, Luke, whoever wrote this, wrote this book and used the common language of his time. Oops, he forgot that this word wasn't being used for these kinds of officials at this time. Now, this is a big problem. Okay, because if, this, if they're right, and that word wasn't used, and it was really written in the second century, then Luke couldn't have been, who he says he is, hanging out with Paul in the first century. But they're not right. They're not right, because since then, there's been tons of archaeology, and scholars uh, who, have, who used to say that about Scripture just turned out to be dead wrong. They found over, uh, or found 70 different inscriptions using this exact term, most of them from Macedonia, which is the region where we are now, and over half of those in Macedonia were in the city of Thessalonica, which is where Luke was. So instead of it being something proving that the Bible wasn't written when it was supposed to be written and so on, it actually goes not only to prove that it was written when it was supposed to be written, but that Luke was so detailed that he used the very specific word that they used in that particular area to refer to magistrates. So here's my thing about Scripture. Go ahead and bring whatever you got. What happens is over and over and over and over, archaeology comes back, and as they look and as they look and as they look, they prove that it's right, that it's right, that it's right, that it's it's accurate, that it's correct. This is why I've told you about the, the scholar who wanted to prove that it was all wrong, who wanted to prove that it wasn't real, and went and researched Luke and went and did the archaeology and so on and became a Christ follower because of how accurate, Luke is as a historian. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Okay, verse 7. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right. Romans were not allowed to predict to predict that there would be another king that would come and take over Caesar. This was a law that was put out. No one was allowed to prophesy or predict or say, the emperor's going to die on this day or this new king's going to come. This was a big deal. This was a big deal. Uh, The the Caesars had put these decrees out. And so the people in the cities knew that they were not allowed to have that kind of thing going on because the Caesars got really upset. They didn't like it when people predicted that someone was going to come, some other king was going to come. And so certainly Paul would have preached Jesus as Lord. Of course, he wasn't talking about Jesus coming and taking over and being the next Caesar. Nevertheless, they were able to use this to stir up the crowd, and the city would have been troubled because they would not have wanted to be known as a city that was being insubordinate to Caesar. That would have been a bad, bad deal for them. And so they were troubled. They were concerned. Now, apparently cooler heads prevailed because basically they took Baal, they took a bond from, from Jason, these folks, and they let him go. They let him him take off. And so uh, that's where they went, but obviously things are still probably pretty dangerous for Paul and Silas. So in verse 10, we see this. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they go and they get Paul and Silas and they're like, you know what, um... We're not that into mobs coming to our house, uh, being dragged off and so on. We'd like this to sort of calm down, and they're still going to be after you. We want to protect you. And so why don't you guys take off? Let's do it at nighttime. That way no one will see you, and we'll take you off to Berea. So let's get our map up because it's map time. Again, uh, we're going to have a lot of map time today. Uh, Thessalonica to Berea. It's about 47 miles southwest of Thessalonica. That's where Paul travels, Paul and Silas, okay? These are not quick trips. These are trips that they would have taken without a car or a train or an airplane, okay? This would have taken a little while. Uh, traveling apparently at, at first at night, and they get to Berea. And where do they go? They go to the synagogue. That's where they always go. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. These, this is the people in the synagogue of the Jews in Berea, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. It, or that word could also be noble-minded, okay? It's, it's definitely a compliment to them. Um, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So what do we have here? The people were fair-minded. They were noble-minded. They didn't have a bunch of preconceived stuff. They were, they were really wanting to know the truth. So when Paul comes in, he's got an open form. Go ahead and say what you've got to say. Now, it wasn't just we're going to accept whatever you have to say. They had these things out, and they were going through. Okay, you said that. Uh, you know, Okay, that checks out. That's true. It says that. And they went through, and they studied. They had an open mind. They wanted to know what was true. And Paul preached the gospel. He preached Jesus Christ. And as they searched the scriptures and studied it, they came to know. Jesus says, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's there to say, because they were fair minded, because they studied and sought out the scriptures, they became Christ followers. Because they did those things. The Bereans are this great example in Scripture of those who are serious, who are seeking after the Lord, who are fair-minded, noble-minded towards it, using their minds, studying the Scriptures, and coming to know the Lord. And this is our job as believers. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. But our job as believers is not to fear ideas. It's not to fear ideas, it's not to fear what other people have to say, it's not to fear science, it's not to fear those who say things negative about Scripture, it's not to fear any of that. It's to hear what people have to say, use our minds, study, see what the Lord is saying, and come to believe the things that are true.
0: You've been listening to Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Camas, Washington, and this is Contemplate. Wasn't that an inspiring lesson? No matter where he goes, and no matter what the cost, Paul pulls no punches and shares the truth of Christ. What an example for all of us. Now, would you like to hear Pastor David in person? Well, come join us this Sunday morning at Acts Church in Camas, Washington. Pastor David loves to meet our Contemplate listeners, and we have a great family of folks here that love Jesus, and I just know you'll be blessed. Get directions and all the info you need at axcamus.org or call 360-885-9000. I'm Ron Hagelgans. Thanks for being here. I do hope to see you this Sunday and again right here next time for more with our teacher, Pastor David Robinson, here on Contemplate. Contemplate.